0: This is Mouth Media Network, covering the business of lifestyle. This is American Enough with your host, Vikram Iyer.
1: Hey there, my fellow Americans. This is Vikram Iyer, and you've reached the podcast American Enough. Just a quick few housekeeping items. Uh, For those that are just joining us, please subscribe. Rate the podcast um, in your iTunes store and Google Play or Stitcher, Um, we want to make sure that we can spread the word around these conversations uh, to all of our friends and colleagues across the globe. And for those joining the conversation for the first time, a quick reminder that on American Enough, we specifically unpack and decompress the very notion of what it means to be an American. In this day and age, there has been a swirl of rhetoric, conversation, debate and, frankly, vitriol around what it means to be patriotic enough to serve in the military, what it means to speak enough of one language to be considered an American, or what it means to actually be uh, competitive or have enough potential to immigrate lawfully to this country and therefore be considered American enough to immigrate under the eyes of the law. So When you have a really, really strong conversation going on from the leadership of this country, um, which is begging into question what I look like and whether my merits and qualifications or my background or my language or my upbringing qualify me as being just as open to and entitled to the same opportunities as my brother and and my sisters and my peers um, who come from other backgrounds, then you've got a real challenging conversation in front of you, one in which you and I need to decide what in fact it means to be American enough so that way we can embrace collective values, debate collective ideas, and have a really, really strong distillation of the policies that are asking and begging all of us to retool our approach to being an American. Um, In in fact, on this podcast, you can continue to hear conversations around um, how one actually considers rhetoric in presidential speeches, one of unity versus one of division, to understand the concept of uh, Americans in the face of adversity. Uh, You'll hear stories of those that have advised former presidents on uh, LGBTQ uh, policy, and you'll hear from those that maybe currently support the president uh, on those policies. You'll hear a variety of perspectives from those that have had the opportunity and the privilege to swell the ranks of government, uh, community organizing and leadership at the helm of organizations that are actually forcing and advancing questions around American identity, uh, but you're also going to hear disparate views and attitudes from individuals themselves, uh, your neighbors, your churchgoers, your mosque goers, uh, even your nieces and nephews, because on American Enough, One principal goal that we have is to actually have a dialogue with those that are most interested in these conversations, and that does not mean that you have to have a fancy title, doesn't mean you have to be an elected official, doesn't mean you even have to be a PTA member. All it means is that you have an interest in these types of conversations, an attitude to offer a perspective to share, and it doesn't have to be in line with anything that you've heard by way of ideology or perspective for me or anyone else on this podcast. The goal here is an open, free, and frank debate. And this time in our country, we couldn't need it more. Uh, so that's why we are very excited to offer the very first uh, town hall episode of American Enough, in which we actually hear directly from our listeners. Um, all listeners are able to dial in at 1-844-4Bikram. That's one 844 484 Five, seven, eight, six, and leave a message uh, with a question, a comment on any of the issues that we unpack. And we today have the opportunity to hear directly um, from a whole wide swath of individuals who are constantly struggling with this concept of identity under the current political uh, climate, and that is their American identity. Uh, Atlantic Magazine this week just published a very provocative cover story in which they allege our president, Donald J. Trump, is in fact America's first white president. The concept being not that the color of his skin is something unique in the Oval Office, but rather the concept of how we talk about community and identity and bringing a nation together that is specifically from disparate pasts uh, is being begged into question by this president day in and day out. Uh, We see it with his Topsy-turvy attitudes and perspectives via various speeches and press conferences when he's talking about the rights of neo-Nazis in Charlottesville. Uh, we also see it the next moment in which he is talking about uh, the need for unity uh, after. The, the tragic incident of a shooting at a congressional baseball game. Um, on one moment, you have a president calling for the unity of this country. The next moment, you have a president um, actively endorsing the ability for hate groups, offering hate speech to stand tall and stall proud with those hateful pieces of rhetoric. So when we talk about Donald Trump being the first white president, we have to ask ourselves the basic question of, is there a sense of colored identity that needs to be invoked with each president, or does that president of the United States have to actually uh, be representative of the entire republic, the entire sense of a democracy, and all of the people that makes, make up the stars and stripes on our fair flag? Uh, that is a question um, unpacked by The Atlantic Magazine quite beautifully, and if you haven't had a chance to so check it out yet, please do and go and give that a Google. But that is also a question that brings us directly to our first town hall dialogue. And that is um, a question that we have from our friend Steve from Rochester, New York. Uh, Steve, what what were your thoughts? I, I know you had a comment that you wanted to share.
2: It seems obviously the country is very divided and it's much harder to talk politics these days than I think it's ever been. Um, I certainly feel like I walk on eggshells whenever I express my opinion, and I know many of my friends feel uh, the same way no matter what side of the fence they're on. Uh, my question is, even though this is a certainly a historic presidency, um, no matter how you feel about the man, um, and he's accomplished things that have never been accomplished before in certainly a different manner, but are we regressing? Are we not as open to talk about politics as we've been uh, in years past, and is that a concern of yours?
1: Uh, thank you very much. That's a fantastic question, Steve, and, and perfectly aligned with what we're trying to, to you know, identify and, and have a conversation around here on this podcast. Because when it comes to um, talking about politics, the concept of, of a national debate and a discourse um, is rooted in, in the history of this country. In fact, it's as old as the very founding of this country itself. You know, we we often hear of the concept of someone getting on a soapbox or shouting out in the town square. And that's because at the very dawn of this country coming together, even as the founding fathers were penning together documents, we celebrated the individual who simply wanted to take a stand, express their voice, um, and would literally stand atop a soapbox in the middle of a town square to share his or her ideas. Uh, I, I think that that was one of the purest forms of facilitating a conversation in this country. And it was only by expressing those ideas and those values inherent in those ideas were we able to start to coalesce around a few ideas of what we wanted America as a nation to be about. But but it didn't always have to be someone who had the audacity to stand up in front of others and share his or her thoughts. Um, It even boiled down to a kitchen room conversation, whether you're having dinner with your extended family during Thanksgiving and uh, you have some heated debates with uh, an uncle or aunt that you disagree with, or if it's just even in a more modern capacity, multiple fora online in which anyone can anonymously share their thoughts and views on any perspective, sometimes with very, very thoughtful and rational analytical views, other times with you know pretty strong trolling behavior that you see at the bottom of the comment section of almost any news article or frankly, a Facebook post. So. The concept of discussion, as Steve points out, couldn't be more important. Um, But as we've actually taken a look at um, what is happening with our current rhetoric in parties, um, we we definitely do, from what Steve mentioned, have a a challenge on our hands. Um, Are we walking around eggshells? Are we, in fact, you know, pulling back a little bit from want not wanting to poke the bear, maybe with a family member that we know disagrees with us or a family member who we know supports someone that we vehemently hate or disagree with. Um, these are going to be challenging moments in time, because while many of us out there have maybe never really paid attention to politics or really cared for politics, right now, anyone that's got a smartphone that's receiving any elements of um, you know, news notifications on it. Every few hours, you look at your phone and there's a new headline of either a scandal related to a Russia inquiry coming out of this president or the education secretary talking about um, a, a reprieve on the plans that president obama uh, made to help encourage the reporting of sexual assault on college campuses or the next moment you'll see a news alert about what donald trump tweeted about yelling at somebody and maybe uh, endorsing racially insensitive uh, rhetoric from other groups um, it seems that every few moments there's something of the shock and awe variety Emanating from those leaders that really are looked to to offer moral leadership in this country And so I think to Steve's point whether or not you are a political watcher and observer um, Or you're a passive observer of politics or you disdain it altogether the swarm of information and the swarm of headlines from this administration really can't be stopped or pushed back on or ignored so The one thing that we are all going to have to uh, see is our own civic duty, as well as perhaps a duty to our current children, um, whether they're in high school or whether they're in college or you're just, um, you know, having a chat and catching up with a family member. Uh, We owe it to future generations to craft a sense of moral leadership that we genuinely want to subscribe to. It is not fair enough for us to say that we genuinely hate an individual or we despise their ideas or we think that their ideologies are disgusting without actually giving our children and our communities around us a fair chance at understanding and hearing out why those perspectives may be fair in the eyes of another. Um, If we fail to do that, if we fail to have open and honest conversation with those around that kitchen table that we rely on every day for love, protection, care, and friendship, then we start to unravel the most basic elements of not just our democracy, that being light and transparency of thought and and transparency of information and an exchange of ideas, but we start to actually undercut our concept of family and community because we won't even be able to engage in a uh, open marketplace of ideas with those that actually make up that marketplace. So I think to Steve's point, It may be very fair to want to retreat from having these conversations with other individuals, uh, but really we all should stand up and, and when we feel we have a voice or a perspective on a, a, a political topic or really any prickly topic, um, it is important for us to share that. Otherwise, we shoot not only that idea in the foot by not allowing it to have life and breathe with oxygen, but we also shoot our sense of community in the foot because we retreat away from one another. And this country has always been built on the ideas of one another. So we have to make sure that we encourage that. And, and I really appreciate that question, Steve. Um, next. We've got uh, Lois, uh, go ahead and, and tell us what's on your mind.
2: Hi, this is Lois of New York, New York, and I have a question. Since the notion of equality is one which is bandied about pretty frequently, and people are concerned about the growing inequality in the United States, how does that translate into education policy? Should the goal be to create an equal, playing field by pushing everyone towards a four-year college degree? Or is it a better solution to track some people into vocational education where they can graduate from high school or two-year college and get a job immediately? Is that a better solution? Or does that just increase the unequal nature of our society? I'd like your thoughts on that. Thank you.
1: That couldn't be a more important question um, for us to tackle and address at this time, Uh, and that's for a couple of reasons. You know, just a moment ago when we were chatting through Steve's thoughts, we we talked about how the basic comments. Uh, that we exchange with one another are really the foundational elements that make our communities they're an exchange of ideas and that ladder up into the foundation sorry, that ladders up into the foundation of our republic, our democracy that exchange of ideas those debates of ideas um, but to Lois's point um, if if uh, an ideation and the iterative process in which we form america um, with each brick creating a more perfect union with new ideas is one part of the equation the other part of the equation is inherently rooted in how we educate our fellow neighbors and our daughters and our sons as productive members of society, but but also thoughtful members of society to ultimately inform those exchange of ideas down the road one day. So unless we have a fit for purpose, 21st century modernized education system, um, then we're not only going to lose out on that exchange of thoughtful and informed debates and, and a free exchange of ideas, but we are also going to lose out on the competitiveness of this nation. Um, and the reason that America, the American experiment has thrived in large part has been because of this core concept that this nation is one of tinkerers. We are risk takers. We literally stand on the backs of one another's ideas and perspectives and stare longingly right into the the sky and say, what can we tackle next? The concept of creating a, a worldwide network of information exchanges that is born into a modern internet came from American-invested Department of Defense Technologies at DARPA that actually was the result of a very, very strong computer science educational system within the United States. The very concept of the Wright Brothers and aerospace design come from the fact that we have all-star universities like Emory-Brittle in Florida that are educating the next generation of what aeronautics and what space aviation ought to look like. All of these educational institutions in this country deserve to be treated like temples. They deserve to be funded at the uh, the highly appropriate cost of paying teachers fairly, but also making sure that we're attracting the best and brightest to our shores um, and with, from within our shores to make sure that they're focused on education. So, I think maybe I'm speaking to the general choir here that most folks would agree with me that education and investments in education are key. But Lois specifically, you know, comments on this like sense of inequality based off of a sense of different types of educational programs for your college, vocational programs or something else altogether. Um, And I, I think... Lois, to your point, we have to start with a basic understanding of how the competitive landscape in this country is changing. We heard a lot in this last election about how automated technologies are hurting coal mining jobs in West Virginia, for example. Um, But if you even zoom out a bit further from just uh, the coal industry, we see that automation routinely could pose threats to all sorts of service jobs in this country. Whether it's the ATM machine offsetting bank tellers at banks, or whether it's driverless vehicles that might one day impact how truckers do business or how cab drivers do business, um, or if it's just smarter and faster algorithms that are able to perform tasks on behalf of companies and corporations that today require human care and human attention. Um, when automation could potentially pose a threat to what the concept of work is and how a job is actually constructed and what that future of work might be about that then we've got a real challenge on our hands in which our educational system needs to adopt and, and keep pace with that. Uh, so right now in this country, we have a very strong investment in four-year institutions, both public and private. Um, and then, of course, as Lois pointed out, we have vocational training programs. Uh, we have community college programs. But what I would submit to all of uh, you and uh, any fellow American is that in order to remain American enough, that is, in order to remain the same sense of competitive and, and, and thinking differently within this country with that wide-eyed wonderlust that I, too, can change the world or I, too, can build the next great communication tool to actually change the way I interact with the world, we're going to need to have an educational system that adopts to how, how these new technologies are changing our landscape. That means rigorous Investments in STEM education at the K through 12 level, deepening that bench of potential computer scientists, engineers, mathematicians, even artists that are intelligently weaving digital design and user centered design to make sure that each of us has an optimal experience with the products that we that work with or interact with in the world around us. That needs to start early. It needs to start on day one. So I would I would say even before we get to the college question, we, we need to have a congressional budget and a presidential budget that reflects the need and the urgent need to invest in these skills for the future and if not other countries whether you're china whether you're canada they are going to continue to invest in these spaces and outpace us and beat us full stop but then when you get to the college ages um, we continue to need to have a model that ends up adapting to the needs of the individual right now technology is not just changing the landscape of what work looks like the technology is also changing the way that the educational process could look like you've got incredible online um, educational technology tools like udemy.com like khan academy.com that are offering this bevy of curricula whether it's in trigonometry or it's understanding our trading relationship with yemen All of this content is, is packaged in front of us in the power of the internet, but also just fitted into the, you know, the our own pockets on our phones. And so with these kinds of models, it it has begged the question in classrooms of should, instead of doing homework at home, should homework actually be discussed, deliberated upon and tackled in a peer-to-peer environment of the classroom? And you can instead learn about uh, each of these concepts in the more traditional way of teaching a curriculum by consuming videos while you are at home. So you have that kind of tailored approach to the individual consuming information Consuming media um, on their own time, being able to rewind statements that they didn't quite understand or pause as their schedules require it, and then based off of what they've absorbed and soaked up, uh, you know, with their own speed and tempo to soaking that knowledge up, they then bring the questions around the material or tackle problem sets or homework problems around the material in the actual classroom. So I want to reference this because technology is also changing the way that we would even think about how technology um, or sorry how how an educational process should work so that is an important reminder because whether we talk about vocational programs whether we talk about um, four-year institutions or community college we have to realize that each of this is based off of the individual's learning attention capacity and and willingness and ability to engage if we try and paper over society with one fix all solution or one endorsed solution, then we aren't necessarily accounting for the nuances and eccentricities of an individual's approach to how they learn. And and that's going to be really, really important just in terms of the individual picking programs that work for them. Um, But Lois also tracked into this concept that if we have this patchwork of different educational programs, does that... Hasten some sense of inequality in this country. Uh, I would, I would respectfully submit that it does not. In fact, because of the automation that we uh, are, sorry, because of the automation that is shaping the future of work, we have to make sure that we have continuous learning models in this country. That means even after you have had the best STEM education at the K-12 through level, and even after you've gone to the most all-star vocational program or four-year institution for college or higher education, um, we're going to need to brush up on skills and continue to refine our skills at later stages in our lives. The fact remains that If there is an autonomous trucking vehicle coming to town, then that means that the auto mechanic, who's well versed in what that engine looks like and how it functions under the hood of that truck, um, now needs to understand the operating software and the operating system and the engineering technology behind it when they're also poking under the hood of the truck, because. Combustion is now being seamlessly wedded to sensors and advanced monetization, sorry, monitoring and lidar technology, all of which is changing what a truck looks like. So maintenance of a truck is also changing. So even if you went to a vocational program to learn how to understand the internal combustion dynamics of a vehicle, particularly a truck or any kind of car, then as an auto mechanic, as these new technologies get introduced, where are you going to learn about how that new tech is changing what it looks like under the hood now. You have to create, we have to create, cities, mayors, congress, governors, they all have to create educational programs that allow for late stage learning as well. So that means that if you want to enroll in a course when you are 40 years old and when you're well out of the average age range for a four-year college institution perhaps although you could go to college at any point if you want to understand what it's like to code because you need that for your job or you want that to get ahead in your workplace or for a new industry then we need to offer incubating coding like academies um, that give you that ability to to plug in we also then need to offer individuals to get upskilled in a wide variety of other areas. You know, if you're a manufacturer and manufacturing floors are increasingly using 3D printed or additive manufacturing technologies, then we're also going to have to have um, city-based or educationally-based modules in which individual supply chain manufacturers get to learn how you actually use a a, a 3D printer. And so I think this is a long-winded way of saying that it's not just about for your institutions or vocational programs, it's about an all of the above approach. We're going to need to have rigorous investments in STEM education. We're going to need to have later stage learning modules, what we'll call continuous learning, so that way you could plug into programs at any point in your life. We're going to need to have apprenticeship models. Demystifying the concept of an apprentice as being something that you just did if you wanted to be a cobbler back in the 1600s, and instead an apprenticeship model where those that have some skill sets but need a bit more augmentation of what it looks like to apply those skill sets towards our modern job landscape and our modern technological landscape, Um, whether whether it's a shadowing capacity or actually tech companies welcoming in folks with open arms for apprenticeship programs so they can learn these things, um, even if they're not 100% on paper, um, equipped with all the degrees to be able to execute on those things. These are the types of models that are going to reshape the concept of work. And so that way we can mold the skills of individuals uh, across a temporal timeline that's rapidly being inserted with new realities and outcomes of the nature of work. So that's education. Uh, but but love the question lois and would love your anyone's thoughts if they disagree with us here because um, it is core to to being American to make sure that we invest in all-star educational programs but it's easy for those to be overlooked as something that really is only engaged um, between the ages of you know four and, and 21 22 and then after that society sort of lets you learn on your own we we really do need to start investing in modules that give opportunity to refine your skill sets and your know-how uh, throughout the stages of the career in your life. So next up on the town hall, we've got um, an incredibly important question and timely question given the, the tragic situations going on, um, both in, in Texas and Florida with uh, incredibly intense storms during this hurricane season. Uh, we got a question here from Jason. Jason, go ahead.
2: How has the policy changed regarding FEMA and disaster relief Uh, From the previous administration, the Obama administration, to the new current Trump administration, and what advice would you have to the current administration uh, as far as how to react and try to alleviate the upcoming damage that's going to be hitting the lower part of Florida? Thank you.
1: So FEMA policy um, is as American as it gets it really needs to be core to any governing in uh, governing apparatus because it has this core concept of looking out for community. Um, it really does not take a look at whether that community is made up of one type of religion or one type of color or one type of language that's spoke in in thick enclaves. Um, it simply looks out to make sure that when natural disasters hit, when communities are, are tackled by treacherous storms. And when people and their homes are put into fear and put into to threats of security of their own livelihood, um, we need to have one another's back. And that is core to our institution. And it's core to what this country believes in and what this podcast stands for. So um, let's just start by acknowledging all of the uh, federal and local emergency management professionals that are out there, um, and, and it's actually split that into a couple of different categories. Because for all of our listeners, while we've often seen images, um, you know, whether it was the the uh, horrific images from Hurricane Katrina, um, or more recently um, in, in Texas of Hurricane Harvey, or Irma in in Florida, um, and now Jose in Florida. Um, we've all seen images of of rescue workers from FEMA with those FEMA flat jackets on, kind of like FBI um, jackets. But who are these individuals? These are professionals that kind of work in a variety of buckets. On the one hand, you've got um, emergency responders. So this is not just first responders like we know of from you know fire departments and police officers um, or National guard units mobilizing. Um, these are actually, disaster relief professionals that spend their time, their energy, and their entire careers uh, making sure that as soon as a flood hits, that they are responding and setting up the appropriate regional apparatus to respond by way of capping oil wells if there's you know a, a terrible disaster and involving a facility, making sure that levees are um, doing the job that they need to, or if there's flooding, making sure that we bring in the correct Army Corps of Engineers to, to rebuild them appropriately. They're making sure that bodies are able to be um, handled appropriately in the event of tragedy, and they're able to most fundamentally focus on how we get evacuees out to a safe place um, and how we actually build an infrastructure on the ground um, and, and stood up in real time when evacuees need. a a temporary place to call home. Um, You also have on another side of the emergency management equation uh, planners. These are folks that help make sure that even when it's not hurricane season, when hurricane headlines are not swarming um, the news uh, cycles, that they are day in and day out, 365 days across the year, making sure that uh, we are taking the appropriate steps to be in a go position when disaster does hit our shores or a hurricane does make landfall. Now these planners are unsung heroes of federal institutions and local institutions, but they are making sure that the right channels of communication between one department and another department are all buttoned up and ready to go should they need to be activated. They are planning throughout the year tabletop exercises so that way when in a disaster hits um, a certain community, they are able to understand how they would actually respond in real time, which is a very effective exercise uh, from a planning perspective. Um, and then you've got in another category, um, long-term recovery specialists. And these are professionals that say, you know, after Hurricane Sandy hit the northeast of our country, uh, individuals that went in and said, okay, community, how do we actually rebuild? Um, whether we're rebuilding cities or taking new urban planning insights into account based off of the damage um, that the storm may have done and, and, and therefore requiring reshaping uh, of of infrastructure, roads, bridges, tunnels, et cetera. Um, These are individuals that are looking at how we actually build towards a more prosperous future. So across the board, you have all types of professionals. And I think that it's important that when it comes to FEMA planning policy from a federal perspective, that we all recognize something um, you know that that I myself didn't know but have had the opportunity to learn um, at is talking to with employees of FEMA over time And that is that there is this federal coordinating function But a good chunk of what happens when it comes to disaster response is actually managed at the state and local level So not only do you have federal coordination of a disaster response and recovery unit that as we mentioned gets stood up on the ground in the region to tackle various needs of a particular disaster in that region. Um, But you also have state professionals. Uh, The state of California would have its own emergency preparedness function. Um, The state of Idaho, the state of Alabama, Mississippi, Florida, um, all of these uh, teams are state-based employees, also government workers, but not at the federal level. And their role couldn't be more vital to executing state-based plans, um, municipal level plans at the city level, and then also Finding the time to coordinate with the federal plans in the event of a disaster declaration. So, that state based element um, was really key and important to the thinking for uh, the Trump administration when it came to finding their next leader of FEMA. Uh, we all know that President Obama um, appointed a, a longtime emergency management professional who is adored by um, peers and colleagues and friends like Craig Fugate, and mo- more recently, uh, President Trump. Um, appointed and and the Senate confirmed um, Brock Long, the FEMA administrator under this administration. And he, and this is why I was mentioning the state-based partnerships, he has been well regarded as being an an emergency management professional that pays attention and has a lot of good relationships at that local level. Um, So making sure that federal coordination, um, is in lockstep with regional partners, is a really, really core philosophy to many emergency management professionals, and I think we're all glad to see um, such a strong and competent and locally-minded leader at the helm of, of the current administration's FEMA team. Um, when it comes to state-level preparedness, though, what is quite awful and, and Frankly a little concerning is the trump administration's budget blueprint for fema Um, while he appointed brock long To be mindful of those relationships at the state and local level. He has actually proposed about 600 million dollars worth of cuts to cities and states uh, Grant programs that are facilitated by the federal government to make sure as we said the states do have prepared Uh, preparation team, planning teams in place, that states do have the adequate resources infrastructure to stand up a disaster response center when needed, Um, that states do have the ability to um, uh, coordinate uh, disaster relief with uh, actual immediate short-term response relief efforts, and that states have the budgets and the wherewithal to plan for long-term recovery um, efforts after a a hurricane season has long um, been in their rearview mirror. All of that money is really important for states to do their jobs. And when you've put someone at the helm of the organization um, who 100% champions the ability for states to do their jobs and make sure that they look out for communities, that is not practicing a basic American ideal that I am my brother's keeper, that we look out for one another because we can only look out for one another insofar as we have the resources and the wherewithal and the desire to, and this budget blueprint isn't active disaster in which the Trump administration is saying that, you know what, for the sake of wanting to fight for a smaller government, we're going to put the potential risk to human life in jeopardy at the state and local level. And and quite frankly, it is a real, real shame. The upside, though, and the optimism we should all have when we take a look at terrible headlines is the way that state governments definitely look at preparedness coordination. I think just this week alone, we saw Governor Rick Scott in Florida encourage well ahead of time evacuation plans for those in the Miami and Southern Florida regions um, to make sure that they got to safe harbor much quicker than ever before um, for a state evacuation, um, really just so that way folks could be prepared. That's the kind of leadership that as we continue to see lives and homes will certainly continue to be at danger for, for, you know, these unfortunate and and quite tragic um, natural disasters and circumstances. But with that sort of foresight and leadership, we can continue to find hope and direction. Um, We should also mention An incredible team inside the Department of Commerce, Um, NOAA, which is an acronym that stands for the National Oceanic um, and Atmospheric Administration. The team at NOAA does a lot of weather tracking, work very closely with FEMA, um, as well as state and local governments to make sure that from a weather and climate perspective, um, we are investing appropriately in our resources. Um, Again, the disappointing elements of the Trump administration seem to continue to ladder back to shortchanging conversation and resources in this space, because NOAA's budget was also proposed to be gutted. um, And the frankly appalling climate change denying narrative of this administration is is almost pointing us into a, a box or start pushing us into a box in which we aren't poised to pay attention to the warning signs where heating and temperature adjustments and changes that are drastic to our climate could very very much impact uh, not just could but do very much impact the way that storms and weather reporting occurs in this country and so A better way to make sure that we can push back against the ignorance of that sort of budgeting and and ideology is to make sure that state and local governments are rigorously investing in programs that research climate science, that fund it and frankly, pay attention to um, what that, that research concludes, because that's going to inform how states and localities actually invest in their own disaster preparedness teams. Um, we'll also say that for anyone who is uh, watching what, you know, tragedy and looking to, to, to get involved in donations in any way, um, if you go to the Florida Relief uh, Fund, um, if you Google that, uh, or if you head to UNICEF's website, which is also raising money for emergency uh, supplies. Um, the United Way of Miami-Dade is soliciting donations. Uh, but also, if you're looking to volunteer, um, you definitely want to check out the National Voluntary Organization's Active in Disaster uh, page. That's the National VOAD, so nvoad.org. Um, it will suggest additional ways to get involved. And, and I'll also conclude on this topic um, from Jason that There is a role for the private sector to play here. I mean, we definitely mentioned the heroes um, that were, uh, 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 you know, that are lifetime emergency professionals, um, but we've even seen really cool technologies and apps uh, like Nextdoor um, ensure that that community partners can actually be prepared um, ahead of hurricane season and giving out very, very specific um, guidance uh while the hurricanes are actually in full effect you saw um organizations like uh, Airbnb trying to provide uh, shelter support for evacuees at a discounted rate. Um, even the online delivery app Postmates um, was coordinating free deliveries of batteries, water, other necessary supplies to evacuation centers in Dallas, where a lot of the, the victims offset by Hurricane Harvey in Houston were sent to um, after last week's horrific storm. So really public-private coordination here is going to be important. State and local leadership is going to be important. And and the vision of a female leadership that's willing to coordinate with those um, agencies at the local level is going to be important. But at the end of the day, what we're going to need is a Congress and a president that understand these programs are vital to the American interest and to the American community. And it is not enough to cut them so that way you can bandy about for elections. You've got a smaller federal budget. You need to make sure, Mr. President, that this is not anything we play chicken with.
2: Hi, my name is Nina. I'm in New York City, and I'd just like to make a comment, basically. um, I think, really, this was definitely covered, but um, I really, it resonated with me. I agree that um, we thrive with more contributions and input from people who are bringing and sharing a variety of cultures and experiences and, um, which would be immigrants, and um, that's I think that works collectively as a country, as well as for all of us as individuals. I think we we thrive from that variety of culture and experiences. So just wanted to say I really agree and um, thank you for stating all that.
1: Well, we absolutely appreciate the comment, Nina. And I think from a perspective of what this podcast is standing for um, is absolutely a celebration of inclusion, one that uh, not only looks to immigrant attitudes um, to, to inform our collective perspectives, um, but even looks to perspectives across the spectrum within the United States. We know that the, the the values and vision of one neighborhood could be completely different than a neighborhood just a few miles away. And that's even more so when we keep talking about this country as a fragment of red states and blue states. As Nina pointed out, it goes well beyond that. We're talking about the the capacity for the individual to thrive and the capacity for a community to thrive. And that is specifically rooted in um, more ideas in our broader marketplace, more debate around those ideas, and more inclusion of disparate attitudes that make feel from worlds apart for where, from where our ideologies or perspectives are, but it's only through that free exchange of ideas do we get better. Do we as individuals get sharper? Because we have a heightened sense of empathy for where another human may be coming from, the more we're exposed to their rationale of thinking. Um, and as individuals get smarter and more empathetic, then communities can grow with a function that looks out for one another. Um, and that looking out for one another has been core to our town hall today. It has to deal with the educational systems that load. Asked about it had to it had to do with um, you know the, the question of how we prepare communities um, for the next chapter in their lives after they've been riddled with a natural disaster that that Jason mentioned um, and it definitely had to do with what Steve mentioned at the very top which was being able to even just uh, feel like we aren't walking on eggshells when we want to talk about our political identities um, with our friends and families around the kitchen table. All of this um, requires a sense of looking out for one another and making sure that we never shortchange ourselves from hearing even one more perspective. Uh, There's been all too often this fear that, you know, if you allow in additional perspectives or additional people from other countries on our shores, then we are for some reason going to be undercutting our ability to have jobs and maintain jobs for Americans or that we're in some way going to lose our progressive identity as Americans. But when it comes down to it, um, this country has not only been founded by immigrant attitudes and immigrant perspectives, but we've always been rooted in the belief that brick by brick, we create a more perfect union by adding new concepts to the pot. Stirring it, blending it into the American DNA and making sure that we are stronger and better off for it. That is what American greatness is. And in fact, when we have opened our borders up to those individuals that have, that, that have disparate ideas and creative and innovative visions, it's also allowed us to blossom. Beautifully economically, um, from a competitiveness standpoint, new technologies have been built by di- different attitudes and faces and skin tones and, and frankly, religions right here on US soil that have created new jobs, have created new ways that we interact with the world, and have created a, a more prosperous middle class in this country. So Nina, we thank you for those comments. And of course, for anyone out there listening to this American Enough podcast, if you disagree, if you have other attitudes, if you have other perspectives, we wanna hear from you. This is not about us preaching to the choir. This is about really owning uh, the sense of inputs into an American identity. And that we would welcome um, you know, opposing views as well. Uh we, we've got one last question in our town hall today. And that question um, comes from from both Mike and from Carl. I believe they've got kind of similar um, uh, questions that are following a similar line of logic. But, but let's go ahead and, and hear from Mike first. Mike, go ahead.
2: How do we bring positivity into politics?
1: Thanks. and excited to hear. That's definitely a doozy of a question, because at this point in time, we know a lot of folks are troubled by what the the political landscape looks like um, and, and sort of the vitriol that's packed into our, our heated landscape of, of conversation and debate. You know, today we've been talking a lot about how dialogue matters and it's, it's core to a marketplace of ideas. It's core to, to our own individual freedoms and it's core to our country. Uh, but a lot of that, it can immediately be compromised when rhetoric um Forces the other one out of the debate, or rhetoric actually pierces through our sense of of moral leadership, and instead, instead creates enemies out of the other. The this us versus them mentality can't be healthy. And you know, you know, Mike's question is frankly rooted in a premise that today politics doesn't feel too positive, and that's you know not an unfair characterization. Uh, the way that you bring positivity back into the fold, though, quite frankly, is hope. It's not a, a hokey or kitschy answer. It's a a sense of aspiration that for this country has really been woven into the fabric of our societies. This aspirational goal that we can be better. That my kids will be better off than than his or her parents, and their kids will be even better off than 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 they, they were as parents. And, and this is this sense of reaching for. Uh, the stars in hopes that at a minimum you land on the moon. Um, this is definitely an individual concept that hasn't you know, been ignored in politics, but really needs to, to be latched onto because if the, the, the framing of where America's identity stood under the last election is that we aren't great and that we have to get back to a sense of greatness, um, that foregoes this core concept of hope. In fact, it creates this dynamic in which we say um, we are regressing as a society, that we are not good or performing as a society, and punitively we need to take steps to box out the people the ideas that may have contributed to that backwards mentality in any way. Instead of speaking to where we hope we can go, instead of creating an actual blueprint of vision in the same way that John F. Kennedy wanted to reach for the moon through the space program, instead of creating a same sense of vision um, that uh, President Barack Obama um, wanted to create when he was actually focused on middle class jobs and the income gap, Um, instead of the actual vision Ronald Reagan offered that said that we can be that shining spot atop of Hill, but we need to invest in our body politic in order to get there. Um, Those were aspirational messages of hope because they had a notion of what that North Star was. Today, we have this rhetoric that ends up blasting people if they don't agree with this president. We have rhetoric that um, really pits two groups of people, maybe those that, that support certain policies those that don't oppose them um, in very sort of almost violent protests that we've seen play out over, across the country. Uh, what we need to have is a sense of hope, but also rhetoric that actually is divorced from vitriolic demeanor. Um, it, it means that we need to call out those behaviors that we find to be inappropriate. And it means that, we, that our leaders need to, to not engage in that kind of activity. Bringing positivity to politics also means that we have to, as a citizen base and then these this is for you and I who you know may not work in government. We have to stop hating the prospect of government. Um we've heard a lot of debate about the size of government and its encroachment in people's lives and we can have that debate. We can have that conversation about the size of government and the role of government when it comes to administering health care or making decisions about early childhood educational curricula. We can have those conversations but we can't poo-poo the hardworking patriots that help administer those goods and services once we've agreed to what the framework of governance is going to look like. Um, A local government city council member staff, a bureaucrat who's working at the Department of Motor Vehicles, a colleague or a friend or a neighbor who's working on helping out um, in the, the eye of the storm as a FEMA employee out there in Florida right now. Um, even an individual who is uh, processing visas at the you know at the consulate via the State Department, these are all hardworking individuals that perform vital functions that look out for each other in this sense of community. And we need to make sure that when we have a dialogue and a positivity about politics, that we do not lambast those that are actually there to execute the visions of our leaders um, and instead focus on what that vision precisely can be and ought to be when we do lead as a country. And and Mike, I think I, I share the implicit um, concern in your question that w- that we could be more positive. And I hope that um, in this conversation, even if we have views from folks in our town hall that, that we disagree with, um, that we're able to at least talk it out and build that continued sense of empathy. Um, and, and, and with that. I, w- I want to thank all of you for joining a special edition of American Enough. Um, we will continue to do these town hall type events. Again, if at any point you have a question, a comment, a concern, or you know really want to tear apart anything that I've said here, please, we welcome the conversation. We want to have your views as everyday citizens and peers on this show. Um, you can dial in by calling one 844 4 Again, that's one 844 eight six um, and to close us out today um, we, we're actually going to hear um, from uh, another another citizen uh, friend of the pod of ours uh, Carl from from Brighton New York because um, I thought his thoughts were particularly poignant for for how we feel um, this podcast is is, is is aiming to work and, and how I, we feel these conversations are going to be really really important for the health of our our, our country and for the health of our children's ability to believe in this country. Carl.
2: I think to uh, rephrase the question, what is it to be an American? Uh, similarly, Wade's questioned, you know, what is American enough? I think uh, technically, if you're an American citizen, then you're an American. That's enough for me, but maybe it's more than that. Maybe it's you want to be here, and therefore, you are able to earn citizenship, or if you weren't born here, of course, uh,
0: and uh, therefore, if
2: you boil it down to something simple, it's you want to be here in this country, that's, uh, that's all it takes, and that's, uh, that's enough for me. Thanks.
0: This has been American Enough with Vikram Iyer. American Enough is a production of Mouth Media Network, copyright 2017. Theme music by Chris Thomas, edited by Mark Rako. Contact Vikram with your comments and questions at 844-4-VIKRAM, and connect with the show on social media at American Enough. Episodes available at AmericanEnoughPodcast.com and everywhere the best podcasts are found. To learn more about Mouth Media Network and how you can partner with this podcast, visit MouthMediaNetwork.com. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts, callers, and guests, and do not necessarily reflect the views and opinions of Mouth Media Network. No portion of the show may be reproduced, published, or rebroadcast without the express written permission of the producers. Thank you for listening.